one sports scientist from the Netherlands has, has put it this this way, and I think that he captures it really well, is that everybody eats, so everyone thinks they're a nutritionist. So everyone has, it's like, well, this is what worked for me. This is what worked for me. Why doesn't this work for you? Why doesn't, you know, um, it's hard to understand because a lot of the stuff isn't, isn't immediate. So you don't get immediate feedback all of the time. I mean, maybe sometimes you do, like if you eat like an entire Domino's pizza or something, you probably like won't feel that great, <laughs> but like you wake up the next day and you're like, you're kind of okay. And then you kind of forget how bad you felt mm-hmm. and you go and you do it again. That was a clip from today's guest, Connor Spencer. Connor is the current performance nutritionist for the Los Angeles Football Club. Alongside his work with LAFC, Connor also runs Fuel Lab, a sports nutrition consultancy working with athletes from various sports. He has a master's degree in sports nutrition from Liverpool John Moores University and is a registered sport and exercise nutritionist. I've known Connor for years. He played in this incredible band called Lights Out and and he did a lot of cool things musically. But of course, Lights Out for me is the one that really stands out. Just a great guy that has gone on to really show like, hey, you might kind of come up in the punk scene, but you could land anywhere. And what he does now is ultra interesting. So I'm very appreciative of his time and I hope all of you get as as much out of this episode as I did. But before we get into it, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. Hey everyone, welcome back. And Connor, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Ram. Glad to be here. Dude, it is so wild to be talking to you as we're both like well into our professional career because of course we've known each other for like, I don't know, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of thinking about that too. I was like, I've known you for, yeah, I think probably since I was like 15. Yeah. That's wild. That's totally wild, which is cool. Like it's, it's cool to be able to maintain a relationship and see where people are, are, are like as they're, as they're older. Um, and since we're here to talk about leadership and business and being a professional, let's get into it. So why don't you, for the uninitiated, you know, the audience is going to know about you a bit professionally, but why don't you just tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah. So my name's Connor Spencer. Uh, I'm a sports performance nutritionist. I'm currently the performance nutritionist for the Los Angeles football club, which is a soccer team, uh, here in LA. Um, I also run and operate Fuel Lab Sports Nutrition, which is my own sports nutrition consultancy. And there I work with just athletes of all types from various different sports, just trying to help those athletes dial in their own nutrition strategy. Yeah. It's a fascinating area to be involved in. How did you even go down this path? Um, I think it started out of a, uh, selfishly actually, when I was, um, as I was, in my, let's say early twenties, I got into competitive cycling, mm-hmm. um, largely thanks to a previous guest on your show, Ross Trinari, who just started talking to me nonstop about cycling. I was like, you got to ride, got to ride. And went on a couple of rides with him and it hooked me. Um, and then I got into the competition side of it and it was always like, how can I be better? How can I be better? I'm training, I'm working hard. Am I focusing though on my nutrition and nutrition was sort of a tool that then allowed me to, I think, become a better athlete and, and perform better. Um, and that's how then I got involved and sort of came into this idea of, oh, there's actually 
nutrition for sports and what you eat and when you eat and how much you eat can have a, have an impact on your performance and your recovery and all of these things that, that matter when you're training day after day after day. So previous to, um, educating yourself cause you wanted to be a better athlete, what were you doing? Like, what was your focus professionally? Um, my focus professionally was trying to become a professional bike racer. Okay. So how about even before that, like before you even got into cycling, what were you doing? Working at sneaker stores. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's like, you just kind of found your thing. Yeah. Um, it was, it was moving from, yeah, working at sneaker stores, then working at bike shops. And it was sort of like the cycling and the bike shop thing sort of happened at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for about, what would that have been? Many years spent working in bike shops, trying to see if I could go pro. Mm-hmm. And then that ended up not, not working out. Yeah. Um, do you mind if we go even further back? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. So you grew up in the Bay area. Is that right? Yeah. And tell us about finding like punk and hardcore. Um, yeah, I mean, this was something that I want to say it probably started when, like, when I was as young as like in second grade, second and third grade, mm-hmm. um, when Green Day was like really big on MTV. So mm-hmm. it was sort of like, okay, so you got like Green Day Dookie, you know, mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, like this is this is punk, this is great, and then, and then that, like, I was into skateboarding when I was real young too, so watching skate videos. And then you're like, Oh, what's this band? And you find out, Oh, it's bad religion. And you start listening to bad religion. And I had an older sister. who's about four years older than me. Um, who was also into sort of like punk. And, and we had this rate, this alternative radio station in the barrier called live one Oh five. Um, which I'm sure, I don't even know if it still exists anymore, but I'm sure it's a far cry from, you know, what it was back then, you know, <laughs> but, um, but she, she was sort of a, like a big influence in me. I think as I got a little bit older, as I moved like out of like being like a, like real child into being like, I guess a younger teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think where like, where hardcore really came in and I would say more like, I'm mean, still well-known hardcore bands, but maybe not like stuff that's being played on MTV um, was probably when I was in seventh grade. Um, and I was in, and I remember this day, like so clearly, um, but I was, I was in the back seat of her boyfriend's car at the time she was in high school. Um, and I was in the yeah, seventh grade. And this is your, this is your sister. This is my sister. Yeah. yeah. So my sister's boyfriend's car, we were driving across the golden gate bridge and can't close my eyes from youth of today came on. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is this? Like, cause all up I knew until that point was like AFI mm-hmm. and like a lot of like the nitro records bands that I'd heard on like skate videos, which, you know, like was fun stuff. Like, and it's still like good. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, hearing that youth, of, I was like, what, like that was something that completely, it just like that, like changed my life. Yeah. Like yeah. hearing that album. And I was like, this is incredible. This is like, this is the thing that I've been looking for. Yeah. And there it was. Um, 
So for the uninitiated, and and you know this because we've talked about it, we got a lot of people who come from different lifestyles uh, to the podcast. So some people are corporate people, some people come from pond, you know, like all sorts of different backgrounds. So for people who wouldn't know this, the uninitiated, and Connor, I'm going to say this for you because I don't think you'd say it um, yourself. Uh, Lights Out is one of, was the band that Connor fronted for many years and was one of, and I still think to this day, the coolest, most standout bands from that area of an area that has like such an incredible legacy of punk and hardcore. Uh, for me, a band that I think like just is always like a really important band and, and I think really captured a time and a place super well. If we think about Lights Out, up until that point, was there anything that really gave you a, as much of a focus as you found when you were playing in, in hardcore bands? Like, did you ever do anything before that that you really poured yourself into? No, not really. I mean, I think like growing up, I was, I was skateboarding, mm -hmm. but that wasn't like, and that was, you know, you, yeah, focused on skateboarding, loved skateboarding. Mm -hmm. um, but you're so young that, that it's like, at least for me, you know, when you're like nine, 10 years old, like 11 years old, it's like how, like how focused can you like actually be and how much like action can you take on something? I mean, I know there's like, I'm sure some kids are like doing lots of things at that age now. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't really until high school when, um, when then we started lights out, that was like, Oh, this is where you have a little bit more autonomy as just being like a younger teenager. Um, and you just develop this whole entire community around going to shows every weekend, uh, sometimes during the week. And, and then you have your band and that's just like, that's it. That's your, that's your life pretty much. And that's, that's how it was for me. And, and nothing had really been like that up until, um, that point. So you do lights out and, uh, again, you put up great records, make a big impact, do like national tours. Um, I believe, did you tour Europe? We did. Yeah, we did a yeah. Europe, uh, European tour in 2005. All right. Tour Europe. And then it seems like suddenly music closes off for you. And I know you did more afterwards, but like not again on that level. So, and then I kind of lost track of you until you went into cycling. So when you closed off that chapter of music, and I don't want to say close like that you'll never play music again, but when it, when it stopped being your, your main focus, what replaced that? Like, where did you put that energy? Yeah. Then that energy developed into cycling. Mm -hmm. So then it went from driving home from Sacramento at two in the morning um, to now going to bed at 9am and waking up at 6am every day to go ride before work and then go to races in like the middle of nowhere of California. Okay. So was that energy that like that desire to pour yourself into something, was that already in you or is that something that developed as a result of being involved in punk and hardcore? I don't know. I mean, I feel like, I feel like I can, I can focus really well on like one thing at a time, mm -hmm. you know? So like, and it's, it's funny. You can kind of think about it because it almost feels like there's sort of been like, like I've lived like three lives, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> it was yeah. like, yeah, it was like, okay, punk and hardcore. And this is like, this is what I do. And this is like, this is who I am. Yeah. 
then it turned into cycling and it was like, I'm a, I'm a bike racer and this is what I do. And this is who I am. Yeah. And now it's like, now I'm a sports nutritionist. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that's just like my, like on my lack of attention that I can only really focus on one thing at a time or, or what, but it was like, I think the, what I learned from, from lights out and my experience with lights out was it was like, if you want something and you, and you work hard at it, you'll be able to accomplish what you wanted. And what I wanted as a result of starting lights out was I want to tour the U S and I want to tour Europe. Mm -hmm. And we got to do those things. It wasn't about like playing huge gigantic shows or like making money or anything like that. It was just like, I just want these experiences with with my friends. Mm -hmm. And then we got to do that and it was incredible. So then it was like, okay, I found something else that I really liked, which also had a huge social element to it too. Now, if I start to think about it Mm -hmm. and it's like, okay, now I want to have all these experiences with some of the same friends and some new friends too. Yeah, I, I distinctly remember thinking and, and thank you for saying the community part of it, because when you when I was aware that you were so involved in cycling, um, it stood out to me. I was like, oh, like that makes sense because Connor grew up in punk and there's that whole community. You're like within group and you're doing something together. And it sounds like you took that feeling you had from punk and hardcore and you replicated following something you really care about. But you wanted something that had like a big culture that was around it as well. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting that you like that you frame it that way. Cause it's not something that, that you really think about unless you reflect on it, you mm-hmm. know, cause you just get kind of caught up in the moment, but yeah, there's a, I mean, you have, just like you said, there's the entire culture of punk and hardcore mm-hmm. and then for better or for worse, there's the whole like cycling culture yeah. too. Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's, um, it is interesting to see that connection. Yeah. Uh, I also want to take a, a minute to shout out uh, Sean. Young Blood Records, you rule, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's up, Sean? Uh, great person, great record label, and a big part of Lights Out. And also, um, you know, just like I love what you said. It's like, ah, oh, you know, like I didn't really care about playing the big shows. I just want to do this thing with my friends. But you did play the big shows, and like Lights Out was like a very, and still is a very well remembered. Like I think your reunion shows prove that. Like really has a strong legacy. But that chapter closes, and you go into cycling. Why weren't you able to become a professional cyclist? Um, I probably wasn't good enough. Like it just like you, you have, you get to a level. So in um, there's in amateur cycling in the U S you have different categories. Like category five is like, you're a brand new rider and you like, you know, are just starting to think about racing. And then uh, it goes up to category one where you're like a, um, you're still an amateur, mm-hmm. but you have an opportunity to race with there are certain races where they sort of mix like cat ones and, and pros together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got up to cat one, uh, and raced cat one for about five years. Um, is that right? Yeah. I think about five years with a couple years of, uh, or about like one and a half years of just being like injured the entire year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found cycling rather late, like in my early twenties mm-hmm. and most guys who are pro are racing when they're like eight or nine years old. Mm-hmm. And then they end up on national teams when they're under 18, 
national teams when they're under 23s and then kind of development teams and then feed them sort of into the, into the pro circuit. There's very few examples of guys who find cycling late then end up making a career out of it. Right. Um, I think I found early, early success in cycling. So I was like, Oh, well, I'm like, this is like, this is a piece of cake. Like, let's, let's just keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> you get up to that level where it's like, yeah, like a lot of other people worked really hard to get up to that cat one level. Uh-huh. And then you're like, Oh, this is where people start. Just like, like if you can't hang and you can't like dedicate your, I mean, it felt like almost like like my entire life to it mm-hmm. because I tried racing after then sort of like saying, okay, like I can't just, um, I can't just work to sustain my cycling, uh, ambitions. Now I have to actually work to try to make a, uh, make a career and figure out what I'm going to do with my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just can't fake, you can't fake it at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just think it, you know, I was decent, but I wasn't great. Um, I think I just had so much fun doing it that I was like, I love this. Like, I want this to be my job. Yeah. So probably a bit delusional maybe, but, uh, but we had a good time. Hey man. Like, I think like there's a level of success where I don't know if delusional is the term I'd use, but there's a level of success where you're like, you're, you're not even thinking of failing. You're like, yeah, of course I'm going to do this until you get to a point where you just can't. And then you're like, okay, well, I'll go do something else then. But let's hit that point. Like, so when you first started learning about um, sports nutrition, it was just to help yourself out to become a more competitive. Is that right? When did it start to eclipse your desire to be a cyclist, or was it just like a backup plan uh, when you realized you weren't going to make it? Yeah, I mean, I think when I was at a a, a U.S. cycling regional development camp in, um, in Northern California. Um, it's either probably like, it would have been like 2008, maybe, maybe 2009. And as part of that camp, we had a sports nutritionist come talk to us mm-hmm. and, and hearing her speak, like I was already interested in nutrition, like how it sort of, how it could impact me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then hearing her speak, I was like, Oh, she sounds like she has a really cool job. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I just kind of put that in like in my pocket as something that like, oh, this is kind of neat, you know? And then it would have been like three years later, I sent her an email sort of, and I was like, Hey, how do I do what you do? And then, so she like gave me some, uh, gave me some, some background and some, some tips. And then, yeah, then it was another, like probably five years later where I sent her an email again. And I was like, Hey, moving to the UK and I'm doing what you told me to do. Like I'm going <laughs> to go get my master's. <laughs> um, and I think it was just sort of, it was, it was almost like a natural transition um, through, through luck of, of having, of having an opportunity um, to sort of switch careers um, that still involved, that involved cycling, but also involved a bit of physiology and a bit of nutrition as well. So I think that like that job that I had um, really was like a, like, like a perfect shift to, to move from, from athlete to practitioner. Did you make a distinct decision? Like, okay, it's time to wrap up trying to be an athlete. Like this is, I'm going to end this and pivot. Um, 
I don't think it was so like I'm done. It was more like I'm going to put this on hold and focus on something else thinking that like, Oh, maybe I'll come back to it. Kind of like when you did your second band after lights out. Yeah. Kind of like, it was like, Oh, like, but it's just, there's, you know, again, the, the, the level that the level of time and effort that it takes to be like, as, as fit as I once was, it's like, I don't, I don't feel like I have that time now. And I didn't have that time back then as a point when I was like, okay, now I'm focusing on, on other priorities. And I think it, it was, it's okay because it's your priorities shift. Yeah. Right. So it doesn't feel like you're losing out. It's just like, you're, you're gaining something new and something else is like something else, like your past was there and it happened and it was great, but we don't have to try to like live, live in that. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And, and also we, everything doesn't have to relate to being a punk band. I know I keep poking at it, but like, it's just cause like, I see, I, I see these natural connections, but like you said something and I, I hate to do this. I'm going to make a, a reference to punk though. Like, so let's say someone plays in their like one big band or they have a couple bands, but that kind of like, you're constantly trying to like bring that forward with you. And like something I, I, I always like kind of recoil at is the person who always like they play in a band but they want their band that they're in now to be to be on the same level or regarded in the same kind of stratosphere as things they've done before it's like listen if you're going to do a band now and you're and you're like quote unquote big band was like 10 years ago you should be totally willing to play a show that has two people at it and be like totally cool with it because that's the gig like the gig is like constantly constant rebuild i don't care what size band you played in if you're going to play in a band now and you can't play that small show and open for other bands you probably shouldn't be playing shows. Um, so when we're thinking about uh, when you're started to shift into uh, the world of sports nutrition and you're like, yeah, like I just thought like maybe I'd come back to it. I did want to ask, like I was going to ask about the impact on your mental health. Like, did you feel you were giving something up? But I love how you framed it as like, well, no, I actually felt like I was gaining something and I was going down this path. Was there any ever any moment of like, sense of loss about the the path of becoming a professional athlete or was it just like full speed ahead into this new direction no i think there, there definitely was some feeling of of loss because you i mean you spent or I, you know i spent you know almost well, it's like almost like 10 years like just so like focused on this thing and that was like again, for better or for worse, like sort of like wrapping your identity around it, you know, it was like everything I'd like, it was like, you know, whenever you'd go and like see family, Oh, are you riding? Are you cycling? Are you still, you know, um, that's like your whole entire friend group or like not entire friend group, but so many of your friends are like wrapped up in the same thing. So then when you're, you know, you make, you're like, I'm not going to do this anymore. Then yeah, there is like a sense of, of, like a little bit of like a, like identity crisis sort of thing of like, like, you know, I was a bike racer mm -hmm. and then it's like, okay, but I'm not that anymore. Yeah. So like now what am I? And then it's sort of like, Oh, I'm just Connor. Like, it's fine. Like, yes, get yeah. over it. <laughs> you know, what yeah. I mean? Like, like, like that's, and I, I mean, that's sort of like the same th thing that I was sort of talking about, about like, just stop, stop. Like it's great to reflect, but don't try to live in the past of like, 
I was this, I was this, I was this. And it's more like, like I am doing this now. It's not even like part of the identity, but it's sort of like sort of trying to um, just like, yeah, that was great. This is now let's make what's happening now, like even better. Yeah. 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 So when did you put up the shingle? Like when we were like, okay, now I like what you said, I'm moving from athlete to practitioner. So when was the actual start of your like career in this field? Um, I think it was, it was probably a bit of a, it was a bit of a transition. I'll say like 20, 2015 was when, um, was when I started working at a exercise physiology lab while also racing. Um, and that was in 2015 was like my last, I think like real full year of really like giving it, like giving it everything I had, um, in cycling. Um, and then 20, but I wore I continued to work at that exercise physiology lab from 2015, 2016, 2017, and 2018, before I moved to, um, moved to the UK to do my, to do my master's. So I think that was the definitely like start of my career. Um, in sort of like the last year that I was racing was like the first year that I started to like dive into the world of like exercise physiology and sports nutrition. Um, and then, you know, so I think that was, yeah, that was the beginning, but then, you know, when did, when did my career like officially start? I don't know. Like, I mean, I think I, I would call that like the, like that was sort of like when it started, mm -hmm. but maybe it wasn't until, you know, after finishing my master's and, and becoming the head of sports nutrition at a university here in California, where then it really felt like, okay, like now I've, I've arrived, like kind of arrived. If yeah. I don't know if that's really like the right word, but it's like, you know, that's like, we're all buttoned up sort of from, from the education side. Like maybe we'll see in a couple of years, if like PhD <laughs> comes down the road, but like, um, <laughs> I was like, okay, I went and got my master's. That's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And now I have a job where I remember this is a weird sense of coincidence, but I remember I knew I was moving and and this job was advertised, um, as a sports nutritionist at, it was at Cal state Northridge, which is a university like in the Valley in LA. And I was like, Oh, that's the type of job I want to get when I finish my master's. And then no kidding, go do my master's, come home. I'm home for like eight weeks trying to find a job. And then that job pops up again. And that's the job I end up getting. Wow. So it was, it was like this weird, like little more than a year later, mm -hmm. the job that I was like, this is the type of job I want. It's like, now this is the job I, I have. It's just wild. <laughs> Dude. I love it, man. Um, all right. So I think like on the surface, most people could be like, oh yeah, I know what a sports, sports nutritionist does, but really like, just like any job, once you get behind it, you know, it's like way more complex than that. So what does a sports nutritionist do? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, well, what uh, I can I, I can tell you what I do as, yeah. as a sports nutritionist. Yeah. <laughs> um, my job is is to understand the the training, the the physiological demands of training and competition, mm -hmm. to then recommend 
the how much food to eat, what to eat, and when to eat um, different meals throughout the day and different types of foods throughout the day and in, and in what quantities to maximize the training adaptation uh, response, um, maximize recovery um, when appropriate, and then ultimately uh, maximize performance on game day. Mm-hmm. Um, how much psychology is involved in what you do? Meaning that like, I can imagine that you tell people to do a lot of things and you're going to have some people who are like, absolutely. And then you probably have some people who are like, meh, I'll do whatever I want. Yeah, dude, it's all about relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's about building building relationships and building trust and that stuff takes time mm-hmm. right because there's yeah if if some new guy comes in and is like hey just do this it's like i don't know you why should i trust you who who are you i don't even know your last name like whatever mm-hmm. you know um and so there's a there's absolutely an element of yeah psychology and what you're also like trying to really change is behavior because it's, we I think we all have knowledge of what we like should be doing. Mm-hmm. Right. But how many of us like actually do it. Mm-hmm. Right. And that could be from like a wide variety of things, not just nutrition. Yeah. I mean like the easiest example, I think that anyone can relate to is smoking. It's like straight up smoking will kill you. Like not even a question, no debate. Smoking will absolutely 110% kill you. And if you don't die directly from smoking, you'll very likely die from something related to smoking. It's horrible. People who smoke don't want to smoke. People uh, who are related to people who smoke don't want them to smoke. Yet people smoke. And not only do people smoke, people start smoking. And I, the idea of change is such an interesting one because like everybody, well, most people know what they shouldn't do but very few people know what they should do. And especially with nutrition, like I have no idea, man. I'm like the worst. I'm, I've got a vegan diet. I'm the worst. I eat like absolute garbage constantly. And then I get these moments of like, well, I'm going to be like super healthy. And like, I have no idea how to do it. So I can only imagine when you're working with like high performing athletes, they might be even more difficult because they probably have some theories, some ideas, some education, but they have like a hodgepodge that might make them more difficult to work with. Yeah. I mean, you're also, you're, you're dealing with athletes who, who are already at a, at a high level. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and, and maybe they got there without paying attention to nutrition in the mm-hmm. first place. Yeah. So the question then and is like, okay, well then if I'm already here, why should I take this on? Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, I've experienced that with, many athletes that, that I've worked with, not all of them and, and not from, um, not from the, I'm not just talking about the current club that I'm with, but just like at the, at the college level, at the division one level, at the professional level, at even at the, like, you know, good, fast amateur level. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I'm not really so sure about this. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so trying to, build that relationship or get that buy-in is, is something that, that takes time and is not a change that you're going to see, um, overnight. All right. Well, and to really nail you down on this, like your space is fascinating because like, there's just so much information. There's tons of misinformation and kooky ideas and all that. So like, how do you approach? Cause what we're really talking about here is leading people and leading people, especially that have had a level of success, which is 
hard, like really, really hard. So how do you approach it? How do you make gains with people like that when there's already been a level of success and when there's tons of misinformation out there? How do you actually build that kind of relationship? Yeah, I think the thing that I always try to get across to, to someone is that, that I'm on their side, that I'm not there. One as the nutritionist, I'm not the food police, Mm -hmm. but that we have, we have a shared goal. And that goal is that individual's performance, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you're an athlete, you want to perform well. Mm -hmm. And, and any sort of recommendation that I make to someone is not so I feel good about myself and like my job. It's, it's that it's like anything that I recommend to you is going to be in line with the goal that you have set to be better. And so trying to consolidate a, a plan or a, um, or to cut out misinformation is to then like contextualize things that, that are specific to them. Um, and again, just be like, I'm here to take you to where you want to go. And there may be some things that we haven't, or that you haven't looked at in regards to nutrition that I can help you navigate. Um, so I think that shared goal and really focusing on the athlete themselves and and again, it's about them. It's not about me. Mm-hmm. That's how I try to approach it. Um, can I share with you a, an idea that I have about, uh, about people who, um, about that process of trying to win people over? Um, so I think like people can be viewed either as a service provider or be viewed as an advisor. And a service provider does something specific for you where a service where an advisor can help you do a huge range. They give you like an elevated reality for it. And the way that I compare it is like, it's like utility versus ability. And uh, I'm going to make an odd analogy service providers. And I don't think there's anything wrong. Like we need service providers who give you a specific thing, but the, the, the comparison I'd make is like a chair. I love a chair. I'm sitting in a chair right now. Like I need a chair for a good sit. I got to take a load off. It's fantastic. I can use a chair for a few things. I can use a chair to sit on. I can stand on a chair to reach things. I can like wedge door shut. I can do a few things. We can get creative, but there's not a lot that we could do with the chair. Um, That would be utility. A chair is very specific. It's not going to take, it's not going to give you a ton of different things you can do with it, but that thing that you can do with it is awesome. An advisor is like a computer and uh, a chair versus a computer. It's like, yeah, a chair is better for sitting, but a computer is better for doing literally every other thing that you need to do. And if I need to, I can just sit on the ground. A computer is going to um, increase my ability to do things that I already know how to do, but it's also going to give me an ability to do things that I have no idea how to do or how to get in touch with people who could help me do it. An advisor gives you an elevated reality. Um, They help you achieve your goals and then goals you weren't even aware you needed. They would help you get, like if you had an expectation of a goal, they'd actually stretch that and you're like, oh, I actually could get back up here where um, a service provider has like kind of a set menu and that menu could be awesome. It could be great, but it's very specific. And what I'm hearing here is like, it's kind of like the battle between like, oh, here's like the, here's your, you know, diet that you got to do. And like, that's the utility service provider uh, landscape versus like, I'm on your side. I'm going to help you get there. And like, let's see where we go together. Partner with me effectively. Does that sound 
Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there is a, it's, it's trying to find the balance between the two because mm-hmm. I'm a, the way that I practice is I practice a lot off of principle mm-hmm. around like nutrition principles to follow mm-hmm. as opposed to this is your exact meal plan mm-hmm. to follow because I find oftentimes people will ask for a meal plan and then they don't follow the meal plan. Right. Whereas right. This, the goal is to really <laughs> like coach someone on like how to eat mm-hmm. and how certain foods are very similar to one another and how some foods are very different to one another. Mm-hmm. So, so they understand that, okay, on this type of day, whether it's a rest day or a match day or just a general training day, this is sort of what my plate should look like. And so the goal is to teach principles that then they can practice rather than it's like just not, not learn anything. Yeah. yeah totally. So that's, yeah. So that's, that's how, how I try to try to approach it. But yeah, it is sometimes you have to be, more um just like just eat this well totally and so there's got to be moments where you do have to show up like a service provider or like like you said like maybe the food police like what whatever it be um but on the flip side that to help people elevate isn't about giving them a set of rules it's about like giving them a deeper understanding and when i think about like leadership stuff like the reason i don't i try not to train people on like only on skills like this is how you do this, this is how you do that I try and increase their understanding of who they are, who people are around them, what their environment that they're in. That's why they can make informed, make informed decisions on how to do things and why to do things. But it also increases the value of anything, any skill I teach them, they understand why it matters and how they want to apply it. Just teaching people things like anyone could read a, a book on having an effective diet, just like anyone could read a book about leadership, being able to like apply that to your life or to your sport effectively means that you have to change the way you think, not just the, not just like the skill you have or the menu you follow. Yeah. And I think the, just like you said, it's like, okay, this is why we're doing something. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and some people care about the why, cause they're like, well, why should I do this? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a, again, as we go back to it, it's like, okay, well, there's a physiological reason why I'm recommending this. And, and then it's like, if you, that then is that bit in their head that says, okay, well, if I want this, this is what's happening, um, in my body Mm -hmm. and this is how I then can solve it or repair it or help my body recover Mm -hmm. by putting this on the plate, as opposed to, I'm supposed to eat carbohydrate today. Right. Right no other reason than that's what the nutritionist told me to do. Do you mind if I, I tell you about the uh, stages of change model that, that I, I work with? Yeah, I would love to hear it. Okay. So it's um, called the trans theoretical stages of change model. And so like, that's just like fancy psychology speak for it's like, it's the, it's the theory of change that works across most theories of psychology. So trans theoretical, but we can just call it stages of change. Um, when I first started working in the business world, and I'd, I'd already been a, a therapist for a number of years. I saw all these like articles. It's like, oh, the stage, stages of change or this model of change and that model of change, the, the five stages of change, the 10 stages. And as I was reading, I was like, this is like 
really like weird garbage. Like why are people putting all this stuff out there? Like change is like, it's not that change is easy, but if you just follow this very simple model, it's like predictable. And it's all just about having the right kinds of conversations at the right stage. So stage one is pre-contemplation. It's when someone's not even thinking about the change that you think that they should make. And I always have like a type of a, a question that I think people that's behind each stage. So if I think of pre-contemplation, the question is why, why would I change? Like, I'm even thinking about change. Why would I change? Stage two is contemplation. And so now they're like, okay, well, like maybe I'd change, but the question there is what, well, what would I change? Like, what would my life look like if I made this change? Um, stage three is preparation. And the question behind that is how, how would I do this? And then there's action. And again, that's another how question, but this is like a, a, a stage where there's a lot of feedback. Like, how am I doing? Like, I'm making this change. I need you to give me some feedback. How am I doing? That final stage is maintenance. So now the change has been made and we want to maintain. And for some people, there'd be like a relapse stage in there, but I, I won't get into that part of it. Um, and the maintenance stage, the question would be is um, kind of two questions. One would be how, like, how do I keep this going? But the other question might be what, what's next? And when I think about change and the kind of changes that we try and get people to make, it's about entering in the right stage of change, like where's someone thinking. So if I think of like big organizations, they very often are going into the action phase or they might even go into the um, preparation phase. Like this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it. And then prepare yourself and they go into action. And it's like they miss pre-contemplation, they miss, they miss, miss contemplation. Whenever people are like resistant to change or, or, or really pushing back, they're probably, you just probably started the conversation in the wrong place. And sometimes people can move through the stages of change super quickly. They're just with it. They're ready to change. Maybe they came into, into the conversation in contemplation already, but sometimes you got to really stay with people in that why, that pre-contemplation. Because if you're pitching someone a plan on something and they're like not even at contemplation yet, then it's just like, you're just going to get mixed results over and over again. And that means being influencing thinking by having the willingness to be in a conversation at the right stage. Yeah. I think that, I mean, that's so, so important because you can't, I think so much of it around in, you know, in this role is all, it's, it's about treating people as individuals and, and, and meeting them where they are, because if some people like said, are going to, they're going to buy right in, they're like, I'm down, let's go. And then other people will be like, hmm, not so sure about that. And if you only have one approach and then you're like, well, why isn't this working? Like you said, you probably just started talking to them at the wrong stage, mm -hmm. assuming that they were somewhere where maybe they're not. Totally, man. Um, so out of interest, and I know I'm going to ask you like a huge, I'm really sorry I have to ask you this question. Why is nutrition so freaking hard for our society? Like, it's like the worst, man. Yeah. Um, one one sports scientist um, from the Netherlands has, has put it this this way, and I think that he captures it really well. Is that everybody eats, so everyone thinks they're a nutritionist. Um, so everyone has it's like well, this is what worked for me. This is what worked for me. Why doesn't this work for you? Why doesn't, you know, um, and it's hard. Nutrition's hard 
it's hard to understand because a lot of the stuff isn't, isn't immediate. So you don't get immediate feedback all of the time. I mean, maybe sometimes you do, like if you eat like, you know, an entire Domino's pizza or something, you probably like, won't feel that great, <laughs> but like you wake up the next day and you're like, you're kind of okay. Right. Right. You know? right, right. Um, and then you kind of forget how bad you felt mm-hmm. and you go and you do it again. Right. Yeah. Um, and you can do that for like years and years and not have like, um, you know, we talk about nutrition as, as, as trying to like optimize things, but it's, it's pretty surprising to think about like how many people either by, by choice or not having the choice um, because they don't have the resources to do so to like support themselves from a like nutritionally varied diet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, a lot of it has to do with like food availability. Mm-hmm. Um, the how like how delicious like ultra processed food is and how convenient ultra processed food is compared to like knowing how to cook or caring about how to cook or what's convenient how much time someone has to like prepare those foods and if you think you're like oh i have this signal that i'm hungry i can eat whatever that whatever it is and now that signal has gone so like i'm pretty much good to go mm-hmm. um and I think just good nutrition is just, it's just boring. Mm-hmm. It's not like, you know, we see so much, just like you said, a lot of that misinformation is like these wild ideas that then are like, Hey, that sounds really cool. Like I want to be a part of that mm-hmm. when it's really like, well, good nutrition is just like, it's in my opinion, it's like, it's not that hard. Mm-hmm. It's just boring. And you yeah. just have to be happy with like, having it being sort of regular, like all the time. Yeah. Um, what well, dude, it's so funny you say that, especially about the Domino's pizza, because before we had our conversation today, I ate a huge burrito and literally it was like, I have to lay down for a few minutes. I was like, so tired immediately. I'm like, I ate too much. I'm tired. I got to take a little nap. And I passed out for about 10 minutes before we talked. And as soon as you said the Domino's pizza thing, I was like, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. You're saying this around nutrition though, because like, you know, I'm like, I, I love running cycling. Like I'm, I'm a relatively active person, but I'll go through these wild phases of inactivity and my diet will tank out hard. And then like, I'm, I'm kind of chronically will like shoot up and wait. And then like, once a year I'll shoot up and wait quite a bit. And then by the end of the year, I'll like shoot right back down. Um, and it's like a real predictable pattern for me, but so much of it is tied to heating and how I eat. And once I stop exercising a ton, it's like, I give myself like permission on some weird level just to eat every single thing that I know is bad. Where instead, if I wasn't exercising, cause I, I've got a bit of a bum knee right now, if I didn't exercise, I could just be like, well, why don't I get ahead of the game and not eat like total trash and I'll just take care of my knee and relax a little bit. But there seems to be something attached to like the per, the permission people give give themselves to eat poorly, even if, though they know better, very much like smoking. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's like, that's hard, man. I mean, that, that goes into like, there's some psychological thing that, that people deal with on, on various levels. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, there's, there is that sort of permission mm-hmm. and then that permission then can become 
trying to think of like the the right word for it, but like you know, it can it can develop beyond this sort of like seasonal thing to this like habitual thing. And that starts to get into a realm that like that one I don't I don't know enough about when it comes to like psychology and like relationships with food that is like something that certainly matters. It absolutely matters. It's like I deal with performance. Mm -hmm. And so it's like when, when, when there's like, when there's that type of challenge around, like, I'm not sure like, like what my motivation is for doing this type of thing, you know, around food. It's like, look, I don't know either. And so you need to go talk to someone who has a better idea because mm -hmm. I can tell you what to eat, when to eat and how much to eat. But if there's something in your like going on that says like, I would rather do this and I'd rather do that. It's like, that's like, that's up to you. And I like, I like wish you the best to sort out what's going on. But I think it's like, it's tricky, man. It's like, it's just a hard, I mean, it's something about nutrition just in general is that it's like when you, approach nutrition with someone, you're not just talking about fuel mm -hmm. and you're not just talking about sports or like, or performance. You're talking about someone's like culture, someone's like childhood habits, someone's like relationship with whether it's like their spouse or their family and things like that. So it's not just like, um, this like, you know, as I said, maybe just like a couple of minutes ago, it's like nutrition is rather simple. I mean, it's not really like, there's a lot of emotion tied up into it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I just deal with the very practical side of like, if you want this outcome, mm -hmm. this is what to do. Mm -hmm. And if there's some emotional ties to it, like I'm not that person to talk about that with. Well, man, that's cool though, that you know that boundary. So first of all, thank you for saying that. Cause that's like, when you said it was simple, I was like, man, but it's not simple. Like I, it is, it is practically totally simple. Like there's, there's a code that you can follow basically. But then there's all of the complexities like, you know, emotions and feelings and self image and, you know, society, societal standards and friends and all of the, all the stuff that we could talk about. And you covered it well. Um, but it's also good to know what playground you play in. Like, you know, like I can help you do this. This is the thing that I can help you do. If you want to do that and you want to address that, then maybe I like I can make a referral to you, which in my business, I do quite a bit of referrals because there's a lot of stuff that we don't do as a company. But let me hit on something though that I think it opens up the door for. So like, how like how is leadership, if we think about leadership, because I, I view your role and, and I'm not sure if you'd say this about yourself, I view what you do as leadership, like you're leading people to get to their outcomes. Um, how much of that is like, how much is that to tie to your ability to bring other people along for the journey? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the 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 point i think it's 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 very important to and i may have mentioned this earlier but it's like you have to meet someone where they are because it's it's their journey mm -hmm. it's not my journey like i'm there with them mm -hmm. but it's them that are moving along their own path mm -hmm. and so to to lead someone is to say okay this is where this is where you are. Mm -hmm. And so based on where you are, these are the types of strategies or approaches we can take to then get you to where you want to be down the road in one month's time, two months time, three months time, one year time. Mm -hmm. um, 
And it's, I think, being flexible in my approach of, of what's appropriate when and in what sort of dose of information to give um, that then allows someone to sort of have that like bit of their own realizations, their own, um, yeah, discoveries on like, Oh, this is now I've, I've moved along the path and I'm like at a further point than I was maybe two months ago. Yeah. I, I really like what you said. It's like, what dose of information do I give someone? Um, so in my field, like I have to always kind of like hedge my bets about how much I, how much feedback I give someone, how direct it is, like how gentle do I play? How direct am I? How much like of like general observations do I bring into the conversation versus what I'm directly seeing from them? And I don't always get it right. Like uh, I just had a client like hit me up the other day. It was like, Hey, that thing you told me, like, oh, I can't stop thinking about it. it. Really like really bothered me. Can we talk about it? And I was like, yeah, yeah totally. And I was like, oh, damn it. Like, you know, I probably was too direct there. I knew I should have stepped a little bit softer. And that's just part of the process of being a coach is like figuring out how it works, how to get different people to a similar goal uh, in a way that matters. Um, what have you learned about the times where you've kind of stepped, where you misstepped? Like, what are the things that you've learned about yourself, about the process, how to get better? Yeah, I think... Patience is very important, um, not just from and un, like understanding that, like, yeah, I mentioned this. Okay, well, nutrition's simple. Mm -hmm. However, how we as humans behave is not simple, right? And so, um, you can have the best laid plan, mm -hmm. uh, but then it just doesn't go to plan at all. Mm -hmm. And so then it's just okay. How do we recalibrate? How do we, how do we kind of start over? Um, I think the, the thing that I think has changed over the course of, of my career so far is that I think in the beginning, it was like this big effort to like demonstrate to a client or an athlete, like how smart I am mm -hmm. and use like, complex words and like, uh, pathways in the body of like, well, let's like, let's upregulate this, you know, protein and like your mitochondria and let's like, you know, uh, do this and that and the other. And they're just like, I just don't even, I don't know what that is. I don't care <laughs> if that's going to be beneficial to me. Right. What are you talking about? And that even goes like to another step of like, I spend so much time talking proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. Proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. Mm -hmm. But if we laid out a plate of food for, for people, could, could people truly identify this is protein, this is carbs, this is fat? Mm -hmm. and, and, and do we even understand the energy density and the energy differences around those that like, so you like stop trying to like prove or like, you know, like, hey, put myself on a pedestal mm -hmm. of like, I know this, 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 and this. And it's like, more like what do you know and where are you right now and you don't i don't need to teach you what i know i need to help coach you to get what you want to know so then you can be where you want to be oh, yeah. rather than trying to like teach everyone else give everyone like a lecture on carbohydrate metabolism dude that's awesome i i, I love what you just said there it's like 
super powerful. And it goes to something that I, I've noticed about your story. Um, it sounds like you've had like a lot of uh, a lot of good, great mentors in your life. Like I even think of that person you emailed and you emailed a few years later. Like it's cool that someone was willing to tell you how to do that. So what's the role that mentorship has played in your life and in your career? It's been it's been huge, and I think it's man. I I just I feel so lucky and fortunate to have um, to have people like that. So that that woman was Stacy Sims. She's um, she was a nutritionist here in the states. She's now a lecturer in New Zealand. She like giving me not only the time of day when I was a cyclist and and got the opportunity to work with her as like the first sports nutritionist that I got to work with. But then, yeah, still be able to, you know, email her, like, like I said, like five years later and still have that relationship. But it was because of like her willingness to, to give me the time of day was like, was incredible. And then again, like took, was like part of that journey for me to become where I am right now. Um, Same thing, like my first job at the exercise physiology lab, Tim Fleming at Endurance Performance Training Center, like. He's like, oh, I could use some extra help, like running some of the exercise tests using a metabolic cart, which I had no idea how to use at all, but like gave, like helped get me into this like world and opened a, opened a total door for me. And, um, I think what the thing that I have based on those experiences is something that I always then keep in the back of my head when I've had the opportunity to work with like nutrition interns and have people to try to just like, like pay it back Mm -hmm. because of the opportunities that I feel like I was given from people who didn't have to help me. And they did. It's like, okay, well now how can I help this person who's now maybe where I was, you know, eight years ago. And now they're just trying to like get their first opportunity. So what can I do then to help them get that opportunity? Um, I think that's, that's how mentorship has sort of just being that guide of like, I don't know. I think I'm thinking I'm getting like a little lost here, but it's just like, it's been, I just feel like I've been given really great opportunities from people who didn't have to give me those opportunities. And that's something that I try to do now. Although I feel like I have to give people opportunities because I was given opportunities. (laughs) Um, all right, let's go back to, to punk for a second. Um, what do you think that you took from your experience in punk and hardcore that's helped in your career? Definitely the, like the do it yourself attitude. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like, well, why can't I do this? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, um, you know, it's funny. It's like starting your business, uh, was like, coming up with like your band's name. Right. And then like, and then your logo and you're like, Oh, like trying to think about, um, Oh, like how would this, how does this name sound? How does that name sound? And, um, and then like you develop your aesthetic as a, as a band. Right. And then you try to like develop your aesthetic as, as a consultancy. Right. So that's sort of, um, I think the, but basically like, yeah, okay. Like I'll just, I'll do it. Like, that's fine. I can do this because that those sorts of lessons that you learn from punk and hardcore, you like, you take those with you for, I think for like the rest of your life. 
right? I mean, especially in my, at the time of my life, when that was going on, it was early teenage years, sort of up through like maybe early twenties, um, where I was like more actively involved in hardcore. Still listen to hardcore like every single day. Um, but, uh, but I think that's how it sort of helped in my career of like, you just, you just keep going. Cause maybe you have a bad show, maybe like your band breaks down in South Dakota and you're stuck there like for four days on your first tour and it's terrible, but Hey, then you catch up. And I think we played with you guys in Allegiance uh, in Detroit because of that. Yeah. In Detroit. Detroit. That's right. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I think just like the, you know, the perseverance to like quote a Hatred album. Well, which should be quoted all the time. I think that record's 20 years old now. I think so too, which I cannot believe. I can't believe it. I was just listening to that like yesterday. Yeah, as, as you should. Uh, well, speaking of someone just doing it, uh, I want to give a shout out to Patrick, who's sitting across the, the computer from me. During the pandemic, Patrick just decided he was going to do a solo record and taught himself how to like do all of the stuff that he didn't know how to do before, including recording and uh, video, video editing. And learn, like you learn new instruments and everything too, right? Like, Although we're talking about career stuff, I just think it's like that DIY attitude of punk rock where it's like, well, yeah, why wouldn't I do that? Like that idea opens up doors that would have stayed firmly shut. But once you try the door, you realize it's like, it's not shut because there's someone on the, the other side or because it's locked. It's just shut because I haven't tried to open it yet. And it's such a cool, it's a cool thing to bring forward within your life. But there's a flip side to that coin. Is there anything from punk and hardcore that you think has hampered or impacted you negatively in your professional career? I don't know. I think when I don't know, that's a good question. I'm full of them, man. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I don't know. I think the, the thing, like, I think the thing that was, that was helpful for me. I don't know if it's like, ne- no, I, 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 don't, I don't think it's negative. I think it's, I mean, when I was like, when I was, when lights out started and then like we were playing shows, man, I was just like, I think I was just like, I wasn't intentionally, but I think I was just like really full of myself and mm-hmm. kind of like a jerk, mm-hmm. like sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I remember having someone who was older, who I really respect and still respect. It's like, dude, like you got a bad attitude. And I was like, <laughs> I do like, I don't want to have a bad attitude. Like I thought like, I was just having like fun and a good time, mm-hmm. you know? And he's like, Oh man, like you're a dick. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Like, I couldn't believe. So like, like knock me down a few levels, you know? And, and if, I mean, I guess what I just take from that is like, I don't know where I'm going with it. Actually. Well, you know what, man, Met- mentorship, right? That's someone like doing you a solid and taking you aside and being like, Hey, get a hold of yourself. Yeah. And I think, and I still think about that. I mean, that was like probably like over 20 years ago now at this point. But it's like, and, and I think that is what has the, the benefit of that was like, just like 
maintain, like stay humble, mm-hmm. stay modest. Mm-hmm. Don't like, don't shout to the world what like what you're about all the time. Cause mm-hmm. most of the time people don't care. Like, or like, or like sort like that, that was sort of the thing that I think kind of got from that. So I think trying to just keep your head down and just stay focused rather than be like, look at me. Yeah. 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 No. And I think actually what you just said there, I think, uh, for there's one thing I've heard consistently from people when I ask them this question and they came from the scene is like, you know, I kind of entered into like the business world or the professional world being a little bit like, Hey, look at me or like, here's my idea or here's my opinion on everything. Cause we grew up in punk where it's like, you're supposed to like get up on stage or you're supposed to do, you're supposed to be in the action somehow. And like, it kind of can propel you to, to play maybe a little bit too hands-on where, and then most people are like, I had to learn how to kind of stay in my lane, be focused, like bring where I knew where I could bring value. But when I knew how to do it, bring it harder than anyone else. Yeah. And I think that's like that. I mean, I think that that's a great point. And I think that is, it is, it's true because not like, not everybody wants to hear your opinion about something that you don't have like a lot of say, or, you know, like, it's like, you know, I don't know if we should really do it that way. Like nobody asked you and, and, you know, like not to like, it's good to get ideas from people who are, um, who are outside of maybe like, the you know a like outside of the bubble right but it's like but there's a time and a place for that and yeah just like you said like yeah be on stage where you like hey i got the mic so like everyone's gonna listen to be like you show up in the yeah more like a different environment and you're like there's no mic just like stay focused on what you're there to do mm-hmm. um, and then contribute at the appropriate time. <laughs> totally, man. I, I will never forget being a young therapist and uh, full of, full of just like opinions about everything. It's like, we should do this. We should do that. And I had one boss who just went in like nicely, but was like, yeah, you, you totally know what you're talking about. And, and like dismantled my thinking so like as if you were taking apart a model like was like no 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 and at the end i was just like i don't i don't know what i'm talking about but like it was so but it was also done in a in a respectful way um what i learned from punk and hardcore like i love what you just said it's like you go from being on on stage with a microphone and everyone's like and they're waiting to clap for anything you say they're like yeah yeah and then versus there's no microphone nobody wants to hear you talk about it and they're not going to clap they're going to be like god shut up like just talk what you're talking about, about. All right. So as we're getting close to the close here, man, I got a couple questions. Uh, what can you tell us about your consultancy? Um, well, let's see. Um, yeah, I work, I work with athletes, mm-hmm. um, again, who are like actively involved in, in training. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a whole mix of really just individualizing their own nutrition strategy. So just a lot of like what we talked about, like, what's their goals, where are they at and what are they, what do they want to achieve? Mm-hmm. Um, and what is their trying to figure out like, why do you even want to work with a sports nutritionist? Mm-hmm. Um, and what are you hoping to get out of that experience? So you try to, again, meet someone where they are and then try to provide, um, provide that service and that coaching and that knowledge. Um, and that's, you know, officially started it back in, it was like April of 2021 mm-hmm. um, just to 
you know, expand on the, the types of sports and the types of athletes that I was, that I was working with. Okay. And if someone wanted to work with you, where would they find you? Yeah. Um, I'm at uh, fuellabsports.com. Okay. Is, yeah. And is there anything else, anywhere else that people can look you up, follow you, like uh, get involved with the things that you're doing? Um, I'm on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't post that often, mm-hmm. um, but I like a lot of stuff on Twitter. So <laughs> if you look in my, my likes uh, section of there, um, uh, yeah. So Twitter is just at Connor Spencer, um, just my name uh, that, um, and that's pretty much it. I have an Instagram account, but I've pretty much sworn myself off of it. It's not for, not for me at this time in my life. So, um, so I'm not really on there, even though I do have a profile. All right. So we'll drop some links, uh, when we're putting up the episode, but I'm going to end with three tough questions, man. I hope you are ready. Okay. All right, let's go. Okay. Number one question, and this is brutal. I'm not going to hold you to it. Um, three most iconic, most important punk or hardcore records from the Bay area ever. Oh man. Any era, any style. Okay. Oh geez. Okay. Uh, first one that comes to mind is going to be nerve agent self-titled. Okay. Okay. Because that was a, that was a big, that, that was a big shift where, uh, punk and hardcore stopped being something that I observed to something where then I started to feel like I was actually like part of a community. So like the way, like, again, I was like a 14 year old kid and the way that like Eric treated me was like, this is, this is great. So like that's so, so nerve agents self-titled is, um, is is definitely one of them. Um, Oh, geez. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. I've done this to you. (laughs) Um, just like I love I love that your head is in your hands right now and I just want to tell you there's two people sitting across from me like Patrick is writing down he wrote something down and held it up to me and there these two are arguing behind the screen right now about what your answer should be I didn't tell you all all bands are valid here this is what the most iconic man for you get out of here you get out of here too we don't need you either all right we got one and by the way our guest last another guest last week named the exact same record Oh really? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, dude, well, I'm like drawing like a total blank here. Don't worry, we're going to edit out all of this, or or maybe we won't. Maybe we'll make it even longer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm thinking like, I think a lot about the bands that had an, like, I think about the bands that had an impact on me mm-hmm. the most. Mm-hmm. Um. And the things that like, yeah, like, like it's different in terms, I guess like iconic is, is something that I think was personal. Right. So, mm-hmm. so I'm just, I'm going to go like, I'm going to go with some still belief mm-hmm. too. Hell some hell still yeah, believe man. like um, the, the demo mm-hmm. was great. And mm-hmm. then that, that seven inch that like, I think was released on Martyr Records, like mm-hmm. after they broke up, mm-hmm. was like still like so good. Like when like Matt's voice like changed like slightly and it got like a little bit like rougher. Yeah. Like that is like 
yeah. So, so some still believe, and also for like, for a similar reason as to why I've like chose nerve agents, because some still believe then was like a couple of years later mm-hmm. when then like, it was like meeting all of those dudes then was like, even like, of like, like deeper into the like punk and hardcore community. Mm-hmm. Um, and shout out to Dwayne. Big shout out to Dwayne, mm-hmm. like 100%. Yeah. Um, and then, Okay. Then the third one, then again, for like the reason of like being, being young and being like welcomed into a scene mm-hmm. has got to be all bets off. Hell yeah. Wow. Good one. Okay, good. And, good. uh, and, and Sammy and, and RIP and just like, I mean, that dude was like, like, you know, I was like, just like the seventh grade, like little shit and he was just like he's like you know come to the show like do this like you know and like really was like pushing to again not be that observer but to get involved yeah totally so yeah there we go nerve agents some still believe all bets off okay awesome spencer your job here is to edit out all that silence or increase the silence and then put like that jeopardy sound behind it (laughs) okay okay but but what 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 was on the what was on the paper what should have been my answers? Patrick was like heavily looking. He was pointing with like a grim look saying with the DK symbol. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's huge. That is huge. Ed Kennedy's was the answer. All right, you ready for question number two? Yeah, ready for question two. Okay, um, what's the biggest misconception? What's the biggest misconception about what you do? Um, I think the biggest misconception about what I do Two things. One that I'm the food, that I'm the food police. I'm the guy that says no all the time. Mm-hmm. So no, you can't do that. No, you can't do this. Um, and then the other misconception misconception is that sports nutrition is just about pills and powders mm-hmm. because whenever you're at the mall or something, it's like that's you walk into a supplement store and it's something something sports nutrition. Yeah. All right. Last question. And this is, this is a hard one. And I, I, I know there's no easy way to this one, but it's, it's one that I think you're, you're well able to, to take a shot at, you know, nutrition, like eating all this stuff. It's like complex, like we talked about, but it's also like crazy easy in, in other ways for people who are listening to this, who are, and then there's certainly going to be some of them who are like, damn, I don't know how to like eat better. What is like one, two or three things that you could simply say to help people out to be like, this is just a good starting point. Yeah. Um, okay. There should be some piece of protein on your plate at every single meal, mm-hmm. especially breakfast, because we oftentimes see it neglected at breakfast. Mm-hmm. So that can be, when we talk about protein, we're talking about what probably goes to people's minds at first is going to be like some type of animal based protein. Mm-hmm. So it could be, could be an animal-based protein. It could be a plant-based protein. It doesn't matter. It just needs to be some form of protein. Okay. That needs to be at breakfast, needs to be at lunch, needs to be at dinner. Um, additionally, uh, every meal, or I'm going to say 99% of the time paired with that protein should be some type of fruit or vegetable. Um, and then your grain-based carbohydrates. So think about your breads, your rices, your pastas, um, those can absolutely still be incorporated into the diet, 
But think about increasing the amount that they feature on your plate with the more activity that you do throughout the day. Mm-hmm. So if you are not extremely active, then you probably need less of those grain-based carbohydrates. If you are very active, you likely need more. So think about building your plate around proteins and fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. and then sprinkle in those carbs uh, around your activity. That's like the, I guess, the simplest way to put it. Dude, but that's awesome. I also says that the bur- giant burritos we ate, we're like, we're off, we're off to the races for today. Um, yeah. All right. Anything that get out of here, uh, anything that you want to add in before we close off? Um, I just want to say thanks a lot for having me. Um, it's great to see you and talk with you. Um, that change record is sick. Um, so like, I really, really like it. It's just Mm -hmm. like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of hits on there. Um, and, uh, and I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me. Heck yeah. Uh, everyone, um, something I want to say as I'm closing off, uh, you know, you know, people when they're young and then you get to, you know, sometimes you lose touch, you, you, you know, people change, people grow. I think like something I'd always encourage people to do is like, as you get a little bit older, like really try and see what people actually do. You know, if someone that, you know, is just like a face in the crowd or even someone that, you know, you well, but you don't really know what they do do. It's just kind of maybe nice just to reach out and, and understand what people's worlds are like you know connor when you shared with me what you did i was like i gotta have you on the show man like that's so cool and it's just been cool to to see you develop and and become the person that you are so thank you so much for being on here and just thanks for being in my life man i really appreciate you yeah thanks man you too i say the exact same okay awesome all right everyone we'll see you in the outro and spencer drop the beat You know, it's just cool seeing where Connor is at. You know, we met when we were both quite young um, and Connor's a bit younger than me. And there is that kind of, you know, there's a younger person that you feel like you're kind of looking out for a little bit. And, and certainly not that I had to ever look out for Connor, but you you feel that sense of like, hey, you know, I, I want to do right by this person or I want them to do well. And Connor was just, again, he was in this super cool band and was always just such a good guy, conducted himself really well. But the interesting thing is, you know, you've got good feelings about someone and you lose track of each other over the years. You go on to do different things. And when we've reentered each other's lives, it's like, it's so neat to see him as this like professional who's really well-versed in what he does, is very successful. But still, it's just that same really, really cool guy that I feel like a bit like, hey, man, I, I just want you to do well. So, Connor, thanks so much, man. Like um, hearing a your story and your expertise and and that way that you were able to shift your focus from music to cycling then then to your career. It's really, really, really cool. Um, your willingness to take something to the limit and then go into the next thing. That's awesome. Uh, I'm super proud of you. So everyone, I hope you got as much out of this one today that I did. And um, for now, I'm going to sign off. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. One step.